I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What- right now, it's it's much more present in my mind is to always just have a very open attitude and to just follow your curiosity and to connect to people, um, to do things, not because you think they're useful or they're going to get you somewhere, but rather to just do it if you want to do it, to do it for its own sake, to connect to people for their own sake, not for what they can give you. And I think when you have that kind of attitude, you open yourself up to these sorts of moments that might never have happened because you can't, I mean, you don't know what you need. You don't know who you need. You don't know where your life is going to go. And I think it's such hubris to think that you do. Maria Konnikova is a Harvard and Columbia educated psychologist, author, and in recent years, professional poker player. Over the last year, Maria stepped away from her job and entered into the world of poker to write her new book about poker and the balance of skill and luck in life called The Biggest Bluff. The Biggest Bluff follows Maria's immersion in the world of poker from novice to professional under the tutelage of one of the greatest players in the game, Eric Seidel. But this is not a book about poker. It rather is an exploration of the role chance plays in our lives and how we can learn to play our best game even in the face of mounting odds. How do the skills learned at the poker table translate and the skills required to live a better, more thoughtful, and ultimately successful life? The Biggest Bluff isn't about how to play poker. It's about how to play the world. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Maria, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well, and I'm so excited for this conversation because you're one of those people with just that prolific ability just to, to conquer multiple domains, and you almost find that simultaneous success across them. And I would love to know how you define what it is that you do today because you do so much. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, I would say that I am an author, journalist, and professional poker player. That would be kind of my my succinct summary. Succinct summary. And we're, and we're certainly going to get into many of the things you do right now. But one of the things that I love and I just have such a deep-rooted interest in is understanding the line between skill and chance. And we're mm-hmm. going to talk about those over the next hour. But what do you think has just been the, the luckiest thing that you've had in your life? Well, I mean, obviously, I would I would uh, put it as too closely 
connected things. The first is the so-called ovarian lottery. Um, I was you know, born to the right parents um, who made me what I am, and I have zero control over that. And the second luckiest thing is that my parents decided to leave the Soviet Union and emigrate and come to the United States. And the fact that they did that, and once again, I had nothing to do with it. I was four years old. Um, but the fact that I was able to be raised here and not in what was then the Soviet Union, I think really changed my life in ways that I can't even begin to imagine. Do you think you had a greater appreciation for just wanting to be able to control certain things in your life because of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I am very much aware of how lucky I've been at so many junctures. And yes, I do think that I've, uh, as so many people who have type A type of personalities, um, I definitely do want to control as much as I can. Um, I think this, this latest book, this latest foray has actually um, helped me let go more than I, more than I ever thought I could. So right when you got to the U.S., were you even like that, wanting to control certain outcomes in certain situations? You know, I really couldn't. Um, and that really, that petrified me. I I was just, I was miserable. I was stressed. I was so upset um, when I came here because I knew that I couldn't communicate. I understood, you know, in my four-year-old way that they spoke a different language here and that I couldn't speak that language and that... I couldn't be heard that no one would know what I was saying. And that just really, really upset me. I cried so much um, every single day. And I, I don't remember all of that, but um, but I've been told that I cried very frequently. And I, I do remember the first day of kindergarten where the only thing I knew how to say or write was my name. And um, it was... You know, it was one of these things where you obviously you want to control it, but you can't. And it's this feeling of just absolute helplessness where you see the world ha happening around you and there are certain outcomes that you want. You want to tell people that certain things are wrong. You want to be able to express what's going on so that you can control some of these things so that you can be more comfortable and you can't. Just that ability is completely absent because... No one knows what you're saying. It's a really scary feeling. This is what gets me so excited. When you have someone who, who comes into a new scenario and it's such an uphill battle where you almost have everything going against you. You don't speak the language, a brand new country, all of those things. But you have this internal locus of control. And I mean, you, you go on to, to become a Harvard and Columbia educated psychologist, obviously a best-selling author. So, so I'm wondering, how do you take control at a younger age to, <laughs> to, set, to set the record of, of what you're going to be end up doing later in your life? You don't. I mean, it's so funny um, trying to pre-plan your life or how your career is going to go or how different things are going to go. And I think um, in my mind, one of the things I've learned over and over and over is that, you know, you really can only plan so much because you have no idea what the future is going to bring. I mean, if you had told me like even five years ago that I would one day call myself a professional poker player, I would have just, I, I think laughter would have been an understatement because I just had zero interest in poker. I hate casinos. You know, I hated Vegas, 
all of these things. And it, I, I just would have thought that you were insane. The, there are certain things that um, kind of get you get you no matter what. So when I was when I was little, um, I wanted to be a writer. I told my whole family I announced it at dinner one night when I was five or six years old that I was going to be a writer when I grew up. And um, I and I wrote I wrote a book in English. At that point, I already spoke English when I was in first grade about trolls. Um, there were these toy trolls that everyone had. They were the big first grade uh, fad. They had all sorts of crazy hair colors and um, their hair was just spiky and all these things. And I wanted to write a book about them. I couldn't draw. So I had someone in my class draw the trolls for me. Um, but I supplied the text and I, you know, I just loved it. I love telling stories. I wrote a play in fourth grade, our class play, which I was so incredibly proud of. And it took me forever. And then I think it was over in like eight minutes or nine minutes. So it was very short. I didn't realize, I didn't realize um, how to translate, you know, amount of effort um, on the page to, to what was actually going to happen on stage. Um, but, but it was wonderful. Um, and then I actually just gave up sometime in junior high, early high school, I was reading all these amazing books. And I thought, wow, I can never do this. I'm just a fraud. I'm never going to be a writer. So I'm not going to be a writer. I'm going to take control. And I'm actually going to do something practical with my life. Because also, you know, we didn't have any money. Uh, that's, that's kind of the other component. When I when we just got here, we lived in subsidized housing. Um, you know, no, really, uh, I think, Poor is poor is the right way of of describing it. And my parents obviously worked really hard, and we were able to get out of that. But I definitely had a, a sense of you know I need to take control and do something practical and be able to, to make a living. And so I said you know sc screw writing. I'm never going to be good at it. I'm going to do something. You know how about political science or something like that? And it's just it's the weirdest thing because I have no I didn't want to actually do that, but that's somehow where I ended up. And I said, you know, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to be a lawyer. That's, that's a great career. And I had no interest in law, no interest in going to law school. I never ended up applying to law school or taking the LSAT or doing any of that stuff. Because when I got to college, um, first I fell in love with psychology kind of in high school and wanted to learn more about the mind. At that point, I still didn't realize the close connections that I now see between psychology and writing um, and how interlinked those two things are. Um, at the time, I didn't see that, but I just fell in love with how the mind works and all of these things. So when I got to college, I, th I thought, you know, I'm going to study this. But then the writing, I, I was missing it and I didn't know that I was missing it. And so about halfway through college, um, I secretly applied to a fiction writing seminar. Didn't tell anyone because lots of people apply. Um, it's very selective. These seminars are tiny. They're like eight people, 10 people. Um, and I didn't want to have to tell people that I didn't get in. But I did get in. Um, and that was kind of the start of the resurgence of of writing, and I just suddenly felt fulfilled in a way that I hadn't for a long time. Um, so it's something that I naturally came back to, and I just, and then, you know, the rest is history. I couldn't stop. I had phenomenal fiction instructors um, at Harvard, and I talked to one of them, Catherine Vaz, who's still 
a wonderful friend and someone who's been just a, a really wonderful influence in my life. I remember when I was getting close to graduation and I asked her um, if I had a chance to make it as a professional writer. I said, you know, I understand how crazy this is. Um, so please be honest with me. And she said, yes. Um, and I think that was the encouragement that I needed to take the plunge into becoming a professional bartender because I couldn't actually earn a living as a writer straight out of college. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, I'm so intrigued though by those little moments, even you, you mentioned writing the play and then when you applied to get into that writing course and then what, what Catherine did, just that little bit of encouragement do you think there's these these few moments throughout each person's life where it's almost a fork in the road, but those little bits of encouragement can send them in a different path? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think we can predict what those are going to be. I think it's impossible to plan for them. It's impossible to foresee them. You never know when it's going to happen, from whom it's going to come. And so my attitude and one that over the years I've tried to cultivate purposefully and mindfully, but... Um, that I've had for a while, but right now it's, it's much more present in my mind is to always just have a very open attitude and to just follow your curiosity and to connect to people, um, to do things, not because you think they're useful or they're going to get you somewhere or there's, you know, this is the step I now need to take to get to point Y, which is where I want to go, but rather to just do it if you want to do it, to do it for its own sake, to connect to people for their own sake, not for what they can give you, to seek experiences for their own sake, not because they're a stepping stone to an ultimate destination. And I think when you have that kind of attitude, first of all, you find yourself with people and in situations that you never would have imagined. And you open yourself up to these sorts of moments that might never have happened because you can't, I mean, you don't know what you need. You don't know who you need. You don't know where your life is going to go. And I think it's such hubris to think that you do. Um, and it's very limiting. Yeah. That, that final minute is just so insightful, so practical, just about the serendipity of some of those unknowns. And a few minutes ago, you were even saying, ask me five years ago if I was going to be a professional poker player and there would be no chance. And it was so funny when I first heard your story about becoming a professional poker player, I was like, wait a second. Wasn't this the author of The Confidence Game and The, the Mastermind of Sherlock Holmes book? Because I, I love those two books. I'm like, wait a second. She's becoming a poker player now? So, so I would love for you just to set a little context here into even how that happens because I'm just fascinated by this. And, and even it's really like a deep-rooted fascination in just your ability to take on new challenges, which I think is what I admire most about you. Sure. So when The Confidence Game um, came out, I, you know, I was doing the book tour and all this stuff and... Um, all of that was wonderful. And then um, at some point after the book came out, I had um, just a lot of stuff happen in my life um, that wasn't great and that I had no control over. Um, it all started out with this just absolutely unknown health problem, um, some autoimmune condition um, that still hasn't been diagnosed. But I suddenly just, my hormone levels went all over the place and I became allergic to everything. Like my skin would break out in hives if anything touched it. I basically couldn't wear any clothes. And I still, I mean, it has, I still can basically only wear cotton, but now I can at least go outside and wear jeans and do, do things like that. So, but at that time, this was, I, I don't know, four years ago, something like that. 
Um, there were times when I just literally couldn't go outside. Um, and just my face, my neck, my entire body was covered in these horrible hives. And it was just, it was awful. And I went to all these specialists all over the place to the best hospitals in the world and no one could diagnose it. And I was just put on these just horse doses of steroids, which made me sluggish. And just, it was, it was terrible. Um, so, you know, when you lose your health, you realize how important it is and that you really can't control it, even though, you know, I have a healthy lifestyle. I do yoga. I meditate. I do all of these, you know, I exercise every day. I do all of these good things for myself. But, you know, your your body sometimes has other plans. Um, my grandmother died. My mom lost her job. My husband lost his job. Just all of these things were happening one right after the other. And it made me really just stop and reflect on just how much of our lives are beyond our control and that we can really, we can do the best we can and we can work hard. Um, But, you know, sometimes stuff just happens and it's stuff that we really, it's the big things that we have no control over. Um, We control a lot of the little things. And so I I just, I realized, you know, I want to explore this further. Um, I think this is what I want to write my book about. Um, But that's not a book. I mean, that's just, you know, an interesting idea. And so whenever I start any new project, I read a lot. I mean, I'm a huge reader. Um, I you know, read all the time, but I, whenever I write anything, no matter how short, I, I've done so much reading on the topic beforehand. I think that's really, really important because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you want to write about. Um, it's just really important to do your to do your research. So I started reading about a lot of topics related to chance. And one of my friends suggested that I look at game theory because game theory was an interesting rubric to look at chance and to look at strategy and look at chance in a more confined and controllable way, so to speak. And I started reading John von Neumann's Theory of Games, which I'd never read before. And John von Neumann is kind of one of the geniuses of the 20th century, just this brilliant polymath and father of game theory, um, inventor of the computer. I mean, he he did a lot. Um, and I, as I started reading Theory of Games, I learned that not only was John von Neumann a poker player, but poker was actually the inspiration for game theory, that he realized that poker was the perfect game to offer this kind of strategic simulation of life. Um, That if you could figure it out, that if you could solve it, you'd have this really wonderful model for strategic decision-making because poker, like life, is a game of incomplete information, right? There are things that we have in common that all of us know, but there are things that are private that only the person involved knows. It's a game of people, there's bluffing, there are all these nuances that happen in strategy. And as I was reading this, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. You know, I have no idea what poker is, maybe I should look into this. And I did, I started reading about poker, and then something just clicked in my head. I said, you know what, this could be the book. I can go from zero, which is where I am, you know, not knowing anything about poker, find someone to teach me, kind of immerse myself in this world, and then basically do what von Neumann described, use it as a metaphor for life, use it as a way of exploring the role of chance. And so that was kind of, that was the starting seed. And then a lot of things fell into place. And once again, luck 
showed itself. I got very lucky that the person that I wanted to train me, Eric Seidel, said yes, um, and that we got along and that it all worked out. Um, but I still could never have predicted the direction that the book would take me. Yeah, what I love is how you sought out how to make the best decisions possible, and you just use the the poker table uh, to kind of learn how to make better decisions in the real world. And you mentioned Eric Seidel, and, and I'll allow you kind of just to set a little context of who he is in a minute. But I, I want to use that because I'm so fascinated about skill development and knowledge acquisition, and it seems like you put a ton of thought into your process here. So I would love to know who Eric is and then what you did early on to learn from him. Eric is one of the greatest poker players of all time. I think he's in serious contention for number one of all time. He is probably known to most people who don't know anything about poker um, if they've seen the movie Rounders, um, Brian Koppelman and David Levine's movie starring Matt Damon, um, where Matt Damon is kind of this aspiring poker player while he's in law school. And he keeps watching this clip from the World Series from the late 80s. And the clip is of a very, very young Eric Seidel coming in second in the main event of the World Series of Poker, which is the biggest poker event in the world, to Johnny Chan, who's this legendary figure in poker and who won the main event twice. Um, and this scene just plays over and over and over. And that's actually how I first learned who Eric Seidel was. But then when I started, when I decided this is what I want my project to be, I need someone to teach me. So I, I started doing my research because, like I said, I didn't know anything about this world. So first I looked at, you know, who are the players who've made the most money? Who are the players who've been around for longest? And over and over, Eric just popped out as unique because at the time he was actually number one um, on the all-time money list. Right now I believe he's number three. Um, and... He was winning tournaments, if you look at his tournament results, starting in the 80s, and he's still winning them today. I mean, he has tournament results in early 2020 when uh, live poker was still a thing. Right now, unfortunately, it isn't. He's still winning. Um, and that's crazy because if you look at the career trajectories of a lot of the other kind of old school like names that were around in the 80s, um, that's just simply not the case. They're their careers could not keep up. You could tell that they kind of they lost it a little bit and couldn't keep up with the developments in the game, couldn't keep up with the younger players. And that really stuck out to me that that Eric was actually he had first places basically in every single year in huge fields in in small fields, in high rollers, in main events. I mean, I thought, wow, this is an impressive record. And then I also looked at a lot of videos and he just seems, he seemed really nice. Um, a lot of poker players would throw tantrums and yell and swear and just do all this stuff. And he was just so quiet, so humble, so concentrated. And I thought, you know, I think I could learn from someone like that. Um, and so I, I thought here we have kind of this combination of characteristics, longevity. So clearly this, this is someone who has all of the skills seems like a nice guy and if I want to spend you know a year following someone around they they better be a nice guy and someone from an older generation so probably someone whose approach is more psychological um, because I knew that 
you know, if you're going to learn a new skill, you really want to play to your strengths if you want to learn it quickly. Sure, you need to fill in your holes, you need to figure out where you're weak, but math is not my strong point. The last time I took a math class was in high school. And so I knew that it would actually be a mistake to go with someone who was just a statistician. And they are, there are those. Some people have you know, PhDs in mathematics um, who play poker professionally. And I knew that that wouldn't be the right approach because I would just, I couldn't ramp up quickly enough. And so that's how I chose Eric. And luckily, um, I didn't even realize um, how well I'd chosen because he also chose me in a way. And he said, you know, he was much more than I knew. He was someone who had this very broad curiosity about the world, someone who lived in New York and Las Vegas, not just Las Vegas as most poker bros, um, someone who was from New York originally and just loved the city, loved theater, loved culture, loved art, loved the New Yorker, um, kind of loved where I was coming from, that I wasn't a poker player, that I was an outsider and wanted to just see, you know, well, can this work? Um, can just hard work and good thinking and kind of this psychological background bring you to um, a, a higher level in a short period of time. Yeah, I would love even just go a little bit deeper on your approach. You, you had this great line in the book, and it, and it was, mm -hmm. I may not have known how many cards are in a deck until a few weeks ago, but I was born, but this is I was born for. And I just love that <laughs> because you kind of have that, you don't know what you don't know, but you also are pretty confident in what you do. So can you even just talk about a little bit more about your background and how important that was in becoming the poker player you are? Absolutely. And, you know, the the quote that you that you quote, it wasn't like that I was born for poker. It was that I was born for a kind of the people reading aspects of it because that's what I studied. Um, and when Eric, this was actually a response to what Eric was telling me that psychology is important, that decision making is important. And what I studied in graduate school was risky decision making under hot conditions, under conditions of uncertainty. So when you're making decisions based on incomplete information, when you're making decisions under stress, under time pressure, under emotionally hot conditions, um, when you have to you know, quickly learn, quickly adapt, um, and you have money on the line. I actually had people play stock market games with real money. Um, and I, you know, I never, knew, I never realized that I was training myself for the poker table, but that kind of decision making is exactly what you have to do in poker. And so I had, I think, because I really understood the psychology and was coming to it with kind of this metacognitive awareness that I knew I was an outsider. I knew I didn't know anything about the game. I was a blank slate, but a blank slate with a lot of the skills that Eric identified for me as component skills of poker. And so it was a really interesting thing where you think, okay, you know, can I shortcut some of the time that it's taken these ultra professionals to get to where they are by leveraging what I've learned and kind of the skill set that I bring from other areas where I'm already an expert, where I've already, you know, devoted years and years and years of my life to studying this. Is there is there a way to bring those two together? And it ends up there was. You mentioned Eric almost selected you as well because you guys were just going to be spending so much time together. 
And something that really popped out to me is it just the amount of preparation you put into your first meeting with him. I mean, it was you were preparing for psychological warfare, and I would just love just to hear your your internal thought process there uh, about what you were thinking. Um, I think that it's really important to respect people's time. And when someone like Eric agrees to meet with you, you better do your homework. And I always, you know, I always have an approach whenever I approach someone that I'm going to do as much work, as much research, as much preparation as I possibly can, because I want to maximize the time that we have together. But in this particular case, I mean, I had high stakes. It was a pretty big agenda because he was my number one pick, but he was so far and away number one that I was really scared um, that I wouldn't be able to do this if he said no. And so by the time I met him, I'd watched tons of videos of him. I, you know, I'd really read about him. I still didn't know anything about him because he's a very private person, but I knew a lot about his poker career. And I really wanted to make my case, try to figure out what's going to appeal to him. How is he possibly going to agree to this and be ready? I mean, I came out with printouts of psych studies about poker. So I tried to do as much research as I possibly could um, so that I would make a compelling argument and so that he would also see that I'm a hard worker, that I'm someone who's done all of this preparation and put in all of this work without even knowing if he was going to say yes. And I think your attitude always has to be, you know, I'm going to do all this work and it's never going to be wasted effort. Even if Eric says no, it's okay because I will have done a lot of this research and that's great. I'm going to be able to use it for the book no matter what. Um, And if that's your attitude, I think it really frees you up to spend a lot of time on something because even if it doesn't work out, I don't think any I don't think that sort of preparation can ever be wasted if it's something where you're really meaningfully immersing yourself in something. Yeah, you, you fully were immer- immersed in this, which is part of the process. I, I love just following along. With the ability to look back now, what do you think Eric did that w- was almost just brilliant in, in what he <laughs> did in, in coaching you and just getting the most out of you? Eric is Yoda reincarnated. <laughs> <laughs> or Buddha. <laughs> that is what he did. He never actually told me to do anything with very with very small exceptions he told me what not to do and he gave me the building blocks of thought he gave me the building blocks of critical analysis in poker he would always just push me and question and make me come to my own decisions and he never gave me answers when i wanted them when i said you know how how should i play this hand you know what should i do here am i supposed to raise he'd say well let's think about it you know here are all why would you raise? Why would you do this? Why would you do that? He would never say, yes, you raise here. Um, And his attitude was always, you know, I'm not, it's not that I'm trying to withhold information from you. It's that this is the wrong approach and there is no answer. I can't tell you whether or not to raise here or to fold here or to do this or to do that, that without all of these other things, we need to be in the moment. We need to go through the decision steps one by one. And you have to be just focused on the process and not on this is what you do here. And he told me one thing which just really stuck with me and is something that I've just repeated to myself over and over and over outside of poker, just something that's been embedded in my mind 
And it was just so succinct and so beautiful. And it's so funny. Eric will always say, oh, I'm not very eloquent, but he's actually incredibly eloquent. And what he said was less certainty, more inquiry. And I, I think that's just such a brilliant line. And that's something that really embodies the way he approached teaching me. Well, it almost stems back to, to you and just your curiosity and, and your internal nature that you just love going after new things. Do you think that's another reason he was so drawn to you? Perhaps. I mean, we can, we can ask him. <laughs> but, uh, but, but that's definitely true because that is something that he and I share. One of the things I love about Eric and that I think he helped me. If it weren't for Eric, I don't know that I would have fallen in love with poker. The reason I did was because he helped me see what a beautiful game it is because he loves it and he's curious and he has this passion for life and for everything. Um, he has one of the most well-balanced lifestyles of anyone I've met, which is very rare for poker players. Most poker players you know, play all the time. They're super focused on poker. And Eric is extraordinary and exceptional. And yet um, it's one of the things that he loves, but he truly loves it. And I think it actually keeps him sharp, keeps him very engaged and was one of the reasons why he's still so good because he uses all of these different things in a synergistic way to make himself a stronger player, to give himself emotional resources. And we definitely share that curiosity because one of the things that's always governed what I do is you know, what am I curious about? I mean, I just want to learn. You know, I, I have one life and I just want to make the most of it. So to me, one of the most exciting things is just learning new things, meeting new people, having new experiences and learning, 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 because there's just so much in the world. And sometimes I just stop for a second and think, oh, my God, I'm never going to read all the books I want to read and I'm never going to do all the things I want to do. Um, and that's OK. That's OK. But I want to do as much as I possibly can. Yeah, you and I have the exact same approach there. Uh, but but I want to dive back just to, to self-awareness because this is such an important component, not only at the poker table, but just in life in general. And one of the things you do a great job is just extracting out the importance of that. And I'd love to know what just overall strategies that you've implemented since sitting down at the poker table just to better be able to assess yourself and your decision-making process. I think that... It's first of all, it's something that is a constant work in progress because it's really difficult to always assess yourself. Um, and it's very easy to make excuses about why you're not assessing yourself in this particular situation, especially if you did something wrong and on some level, you know, you did something wrong, but I think it's incredibly important. And poker has definitely given me the discipline, um, to, look back at my decisions, at the process, at all the steps along the way in a dispassionate way, because that's the only way to improve as a poker player. One of the key skills that poker teaches you is that the process has to be separate from the outcome, that what you can do is make the best decision you possibly can with the information you have. And then the outcome is going to be whatever it's going to be. And it doesn't matter because if you lose, sometimes you're going to lose no matter how good your decision process was because that's just that's just the nature of chance. And even if you're a 98% favorite, 2% is going to happen. And poker teaches you exactly what that 2% feels like. And it, it's not pretty and it hurts, but it happens. And 
you know, one of the things that Eric actually taught me as a habit of mind is he, whenever we'd review hands and that's actually still, it was, and it still is one of the biggest tools, um, that we have. It's how we talk about poker is reviewing hands that he played hands that I played hands that we watched together. But one of the things he always said is I don't care what happened. I don't care who won the hand. I don't want to know the outcome. I don't care what the other player had, you know, I, unless, unless it's important information for a future decision, because here, you know, we see that he was bluffing or we see that he was strong and then we're going to analyze another hand with this exact same player at that table during that game. But normally he said, I don't care about the outcome. I care about the questions along the way. And so knowing that I was going to have to talk through hands with him made me actually have a much better process in the moment. It made me stop before every single action and ask why and say, I'm going to have to tell Eric why I did this. So why am I doing it? It's just this extra step of reflection where you say, okay, let me, rather than just acting, let me know that I'm going to be saying this to someone else, that I'm going to be explaining my thought process, that I'm going to be picking apart my thought process, my decision process. So let me be ready for that. And let me actually continue, let me consider all of the options. You know, if I'm planning to do this, well, what are the other options? What else could I be doing? And why is this the best one? And it sounds like, you know, this takes forever, but we're talking a matter of seconds, um, you know, 10 seconds, sometimes 20 seconds. It depends how hard the decision is, sometimes minutes. But it's not, it's not something where you have to actually say, hold on a second, let me write all of this down. You just think through it. And then what you find, at least what I find, is that outside the poker table, I start doing the same thing. Before acting, before saying something, before reacting, I take a step back and I, and I say, why? What are my options? What can I do here? And why am I choosing this specific action? And I think that that is so incredibly important. And if you can, I think one of the things that I have also done in poker and then taken it away from poker to other elements of my life is to take as many notes as possible. So after I play a hand, I actually will often write down what I was thinking and why I did something. After I play a hand in life, you know, after I make a decision or I actually write down why I'm making this decision, you know, what the things I'm considering are, what my options are, why I'm choosing this one. Because our memory is so faulty and we are so subject to hindsight bias. And once the outcome happens, it's so easy for us to forget what the decision process was. If the outcome was good, we're like, oh, yeah, I, I knew this all the time. If the outcome is bad, we're like, oh, well, you know, blah, 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 it's not my fault. But if you have that objective in the moment thing that you put together this record of what you were actually thinking of the factors you were actually using, that's a really powerful tool against hindsight bias because then you can go back, compare it and say, oh, actually, you know, I didn't even think of that. Um, this is an outcome that I completely didn't realize could happen. Oops, my bad. I made a mistake. Wow. So many different directions I could go right now, but I would love to know, have you ever posted uh, a video of you and Eric assessing your hands? No, <laughs> oh, I, I would I would love to do that. Uh, just just be able to go back and watch. So for someone not as familiar with poker, uh, who's listening to this, when you guys are actually reviewing your hands, what does that look like? Is he just kind of 
poking and prodding, asking about what you were thinking through, or how does that process look for you? So the most important thing is first identify the hands where you have questions. So it's not, hand review doesn't mean, oh my God, I can't believe my aces got cracked again. Um, and to people who don't know what poker is, aces are the best hand that you can get in no limit hold'em. And when they're cracked, that means that another hand beat them. And this happens all the time. It's supposed to happen all the time because the hand that's the best hand before any cards come out will often no longer be the hand, best hand by the end of it. So that's a bad beat story. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about are hands where there were parts of the decision where I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing. Um, you know, should I have raised? Should I have folded? Should I have done this? Should I have done that? Um, because there are lots of factors and, you know, you have to weigh each factor and you have to make a decision and you're going to have to decide. And the, the way that you improve is by next time having better decision quality and realizing what you did wrong in those moments. And you're going to make mistakes. I mean, there's not a single poker player in the world who doesn't make mistakes. Eric makes mistakes. And, you know, and Eric is perfect, but he's not actually, you know, it's, it's one of these things where that's just, it's normal. And so the best players are the ones who are able to go back, review, identify where the possible mistakes were and then fix them. And so what hand reviews look like with Eric is I'll say, you know, okay, I played this hand and right away before we even talk about what my question is. There are so many things that I have to tell him. I have to give him the decision environment to say, okay, the person I'm playing against, I've played against before, this is the type of player this is. This is a player who's very aggressive, or this is a player who's very passive, or this is a player who's very tricky, or this is a player who's straightforward, this is a player who's done this, that. You know, you have so much information going into it. Or you say, I've never played with this person before, I just sat down at the table, and this is happening, because this is all relevant information. Then you also have to say, you know, how... Basically, how how rich are you relative to each other? So how many chips do you have? You know, is this someone who has lots and lots of chips who you're playing against? And did you see how they won them, those chips or not? Do you have to make some sort of inference? How many do you have? You know, how just all of these other considerations. Basically, you're establishing the context for the hand before you even get into it. And then you start talking about, I say, okay, you know, this is what happened at every single step. You know, I had these cards um, and I was, this is where I was sitting at the table. So, you know, two people acted before me and there were six people to act after me, or I'm the last person to act. Position is very important when you act, how you act. And that's actually crucial, not just in poker, you know, where, where am I in this process? Where am I in the negotiation? Am I the first to speak? Am I the last to speak? All of these things matter. And so I, I have to kind of set that context as well. And then I start, I describe it. I say, okay, you know, I was second to act and this is what I did. And Eric will stop me and say, okay, why? Why did you do this here? And I'll say, well, you know, these were the considerations in my head. And he'll say, okay, well, what about this? Or what about that? And we'll just go back and forth. And then we'll move on. And sometimes it takes an hour to talk through one single hand. And sometimes it takes two minutes. Sometimes it's actually an interesting hand. And sometimes it ends up that I made some very basic mistake early on. Um, and so the hand isn't that interesting anymore. But there's something to learn from 
all of those discussions, whether they're five minutes long or 55 minutes long. Yeah, Maria, what I love so much about the book is this isn't for poker players. I mean, it's great for poker players, but where I don't play poker anymore, I used to play a ton of it, but this is so relevant for me because when I'm thinking through business decisions, how much and how far and deep you assess the hands, it it makes me think of how I need to be doing that within my business or in life. So I love that so much. And one thing I'm really intrigued about, especially with poker, is just that instant feedback. And you have a great line in your book, and it's it's easy to have an illusion of skill when you're not immediately called out in it through feedback. And, and so I want to know, how does the feedback you receive instantaneously through poker just speed up your learning process? For any kind of learning, feedback is crucial. And unfortunately, the real world is incredibly messy, and it's really hard to get accurate and immediate feedback. And oftentimes we just don't get it ever. Um, or by the time the feedback comes, the decision is so far in the past that it we don't actually learn anything. For optimal learning to occur, you really need action feedback. And poker is still messy because there's still an element of chance. But over the long term, poker is actually pretty clean in the sense that the most skilled player is going to win. And so immediate feedback, it comes in a very, very concrete form in poker, which is money. Am I winning or am I losing? And it's something where, you know, you make a decision, you play out a hand and you win or lose. Now I said earlier, and I'm going to repeat it, you have to separate the outcome from the decision quality. So you also have to have a base knowledge of, okay, this is the this is the outcome, but this is not necessarily the fact that I just won a huge pot isn't necessarily positive feedback. The feedback is, you know, what cards did he have? You know, what percent favorite was I? Um, and did I actually, you know, where am I in that distribution? So that's why I said it's actually a little bit messy. But over time, if I'm a bad player and if I'm not winning, if I'm not making the correct decision, I might win in the short term, but I'm going to lose all my money in the long term. And if I'm a good player, I might lose in the short term, but I'm going to make money in the long term. And that's, I mean, as clear cut feedback as you can get. You're either broke or you're not. And I think that's, it's very important to use all of the metrics available to you and to realize that feedback is coming in multiple forms. Because when when you're playing, it's not, the feedback on the decision is multi-pronged. It's not just the outcome of the cards. It's also, how do I feel after this? It's also, okay, you know, what are the consequences of this? Am I... Do I feel empowered? Am I playing better now that I made this play work or worse? That's also feedback. It's just so many situations over and over and over. And you get to play hands over and over many times because poker games are long. Tournaments are long. Tournaments last many days. And the fact that you're in the same environment the whole time and you keep getting feedback it helps you clean out the messy feedback from the real feedback. It helps you separate the outcome from the process and still be able to look at the outcome in a feedback oriented way, if that makes sense. No, that's a very, it's a strange, it's a strange dichotomy that you're getting kind of feedback in the sense of, did I win or did I lose? But that's not the feedback you should be looking at. 
You should be looking at all of these other things. You should know when you won because you made the right decision and when you won because you didn't. And the way to do that is over time to look back at your results and to know how you were, how's that, how that hand was supposed to play out and to compare your results to the kind of optimal results so that you can account for the variance you know how much of it was chance yeah i love looking back at the results i'll even occasionally do a decision journal just so i can rewind in time and see what my thought process was while making a, a big decision and, and looking just on paper separating the outcome versus the decision quality it seems easy enough when we're looking at it on paper and i'm wondering how hard that was for you to learn and i'm wondering if that was just sped up because the thousands of hands you'll see in poker but for someone who doesn't play poker, how do we develop that ability to really step back? It's really difficult. And it took me a long time. And it also took me it took me having new tools that I didn't necessarily know I needed. So for instance, in poker, I didn't know how to run an analysis of how I'm running. You know, am I running according to expectation? Am I running below expectation? Am I running above expectation? The way you do that is you need to know what expectation is. Um, and there's software that helps you do that. It tells you, you know, this hand versus this hand, you're supposed to win this percent of the time. And so, you, you know, you just all the hands that go to showdown, you can look at that. And showdown means it actually finishes, you see what everyone has. Um, and then you kind of make a graph of that you make a graph of how your results look and you can see how the graphs compare to each other and that is a tool that i didn't even know i needed but it was incredibly helpful and it was incredibly helpful emotionally because there was a time last summer when i just couldn't I just couldn't seem to win anything and i thought wow you know i really need to study um, I'm, I must be making lots and lots and lots of mistakes. My play quality must have really uh, just gone downhill. And then I said, you know what, let me actually start documenting every single all-in confrontation. Let me actually start documenting every showdown um, and graphing it. And I saw that I was running bad, that I was running a lot below expectation. And that helped me a lot. I thought, okay, you know, I'm probably still making tons of mistakes, but at least I know that I'm also not running well. And that's, that's, there's something comforting about that. There's something that you can use in that. And there's a way I think that we can try to implement that outside of poker. Obviously, you don't have, you know, run, run good variance graphs. But if you if you do keep kind of decision journals and document a lot of things, what you want to do is, you know, just be able to have some sort of documentation of the thought process and then see how likely was it that this was going to go wrong. You know, if I'm buying a stock, for instance, and I think about all of the reasons why I'm buying it, why I want to invest in this company, why I think it's going to go well, and then I think, you know, okay, there's an X percent chance that this is going to go wrong. There's an X percent chance that this is going to go wrong. And I do that analysis, and then I see that actually the stock tanked, and it was it ends up going down and down and down, I can go back and say, oh, you know, this is the thing I assigned 1% to. It's happening. Do I need to, you know, this is a really good way to reassess. Do I still think, 
you know, that it's good and that it's going to recover or not. Do I think that this was actually just a mistake? And is this bad enough that I now need to reconsider my decision? And because I have all of that documented, that will help me come to some sort of conclusion. And I think it also helps you be flexible because a lot of people, one of the I think one of the big errors of decision making is that people don't want to change their mind. They don't want to admit to being wrong. And so they try to justify their decision as opposed to understanding their decision and be willing to change it if the information changes. It's one of the things I actually learned in graduate school. The research I did showed that a lot of really, really smart people, once they decide on a winning strategy, if the environment changes and they start getting negative feedback, they're going to stick to their guns. They're going to stick to that same strategy because they just are so confident in themselves and they don't want to believe that their strategy might possibly be wrong now. Yeah, we're interesting creatures, aren't we? <laughs> but uh, you were just kind of talking about assessing things things through and something I was really intrigued about is when you first started playing, how did you decide between, and I know Eric had a lot to do with this, but how did you decide between continuing your reading and knowledge acquisition as opposed to actually sitting down with real life consequences at the table? Eric did have a lot to do with it because I, I think you need to know what you don't know. And I knew that I lacked the skill set to know when I was ready. So Eric was actually very eager that I start playing early on um, for very small stakes because you learn much better by doing. And this I know from, from psychology. But I needed to learn at least something beforehand. So before I played a single hand, um, he had me read um, a few strategy books by one of his friends who's also one of you know, the old time great poker players, Dan Harrington. Um, and we discussed them a lot. And I met Dan and I discussed it with Dan. And I just went through a lot of those things. Um, and I thought that I understood a lot of it in theory. But theory and practice are two very, very different things. And seeing someone describe a hand or describe how you play something, you're like, oh, yeah, this makes total sense. And then you go and play and you say, oh, my God, you know, I'm dying. I, I don't understand what's happening. But Eric was very clear with me that it was very important that I get hands in so that I can practice, so that I can kind of start putting theory into practice and I can start moving up. But he also wanted to make sure that I was very responsible. And so I started off actually playing online, even though um, I didn't want to play online. I was training to play live. But online is a way that you can get a lot of hands in because just the pace of poker is much faster. And also online, you can play at very small stakes, um, you know, tournaments for $10 um, and things that you can actually just basically afford to lose as a learning experience. Um, and luckily, New Jersey has online poker. So I was able to do a reverse commute from New York um, in order to play. And so that's kind of that was the. That was the first step. Um, and then until I started winning consistently online and making money, um, he wouldn't let me play live. And then when I started playing live, I started playing at very, you know, the smallest live stakes I could find, which are still higher. You know, I would play $30 tournaments, $50 tournaments, and he wouldn't let me play. I really wanted to play this $120 tournament and he wouldn't let me play it. He said it was way too expensive for me. Um, he was right. But I was very upset with him. But but it was one of these things where 
you have to make sure you're learning and you're reading and you're doing all of the strategy work, but then you also have to make sure that you bring it back to the table, um, whether it's a virtual table, whether it's a physical table, or whether it's just a metaphorical table because you're not playing poker um, and you're using this all as a metaphor, that you need to have a good combination of the two because you need to put the theory in practice so that you can test certain things, see how they feel, see how they feel for you. Because one strategy that might work for Dan Harrington might not work for me. It might not feel right for me because I'm a different person. Something that might work for Eric Seidel might not work for me. Something that works for me might not work for Eric Seidel. The only way we're going to figure that out, the only way we're going to figure out, you know, what is right for me and what, how I think and how I react and how I respond is by doing it, by playing, by being able to analyze. But then it's really important to take a step back and to kind of do that assessment and to see, okay, what did I learn? Now what do I need to read to study? And it's a constant iterative process. I think you can go wrong in either direction. There are people who spend way too much time studying and then they can't, they're much worse at playing because they can't implement it. And then there are people who just play all the time and they play so much that they just have, their brain doesn't have time to process. They don't reflect enough. And so they just make the same mistakes over and over and over. And they just curse the poker gods rather than figuring out what they're doing wrong. Maria, that answer was just so good. I'm not even going to try to expand upon that. That was just perfectly articulated. I, I love the thought process through there. One thing I'm really interested about, when you take on a, a new skill and you're developing that skill, there's so much you don't know at the beginning. And then you kind of just, the, the bar keeps being raised, right? You get to the next level, the next level. What after a couple years now is just very obvious to you that at the outset you just weren't even <laughs> thinking about? I mean, everything, right? <laughs> it, it, no, it's just it's such a funny question because when when you asked me that question, I just I had this big realization that like I knew nothing. I didn't even know what to expect. I didn't know what I was supposed to look for. Nothing came naturally. Everything was hard. I remember the first hand I tried to explain to Eric and he was like, okay, well, what about this person? What about that person? And I just said, ah, how am I supposed to remember all of this? I don't know. I don't know how many hands he's played. I don't know how many chips he has. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what cards I have and whether this is a spade or a club, you know, not, not quite that bad, but I just, I still am so unclear on everything that it all takes effort. And, you know, after you start doing it and you start doing it and you start doing it over and over and over and explaining it over and over and over and having Eric not yell at you, he's never yelled at me, but be like, you have to do this. He's, but he's very harsh, which is good. He's not like, oh, you played this wonderfully good job. You're really, you know, he's like, no, this is bad. Why are you doing this? You know, I, I just, I still remember this one hand that I was explaining to him at the beginning. And he's like, no, we, we fold here. And I was like, yeah, well, I didn't. And he's like, okay, now, now, now did you fold? I was like, no. And so he's like, okay, so we're supposed to fold four times before you get to the spot. Um, and, and he's not afraid of doing that when I need it. But so at the beginning, it's, it's, it was just everything was so new. So it's so hard for me to even find a place to start answering that question because everything was surprising. I didn't know that I was supposed to pay attention to all of these different things. And right now, you know, and then it becomes second nature. You know, I know 
how many hands people have been playing. I keep very careful notes. I know, you know, I can tell you, it's funny how much better your memory becomes. I can tell you what showdowns happened when I wasn't in the hand. One of the things that Eric really taught me is to pay attention to the hands you're not playing to. Too many people don't do that. They just, you know, they tune out. And I think this is true of life in general. If you're not in the interaction, you're just kind of tuned out, you're on your phone, you're doing something else. Um, It's really hard to pay attention when you're not one of the active participants. But this is crucial for poker. And it's crucial, I think, for any situation in life to just stay engaged even when you're not the protagonist um, and to be a good observer. And I think that's the one thing that I really try to do all the time now that I definitely did not do at the beginning. Well, you bring up such a good point just about the the basic framework and building blocks. And then once that lattice work is built, you can hang new knowledge on top of that. Uh, So that's just, I think, a, a great insightful piece of knowledge there. One thing I have to ask you, I know we need to wrap up here in a few minutes, but you've studied so much about how the mind works in in all of your research, all the time and and thousands of hours you've spent looking at different studies. What's the most interesting thing you've come across about how the mind works? (laughs) Wow. Um, I'm just so I think everything about the mind is interesting. Honestly, honestly, I'm not trying to to skirt your question, Um, but and I actually think, to me, the most interesting thing is how capable the mind is if you let it. I think we focus too much, and this is what I did in my research, on our limitations, on our biases, on the things we do wrong. And I would love to encourage us to actually spin that around a little a little bit and to say, oh my God, you know, look, this girl is capable of winning an international poker title a year after not knowing how many cards were in a deck. Isn't that incredible? Um, people who, you know, I'm not trying to equate this, but, you know, people who lose use of their senses or who lose a limb or, you know, for whom something major happens in the way that their bodies function, their brains rewire and they learn these new ways of doing things that become natural, that just has shows the endless potential that the brain has for learning if you if you put it in the right circumstances, if you have the right mindset for growing and for becoming more capable. And to me, that's actually the most fascinating thing about how the mind works. Not all of the mistakes that we make and all of the all of the uh, hangups that we have, but the enormous potential that we have for growing always. I just love that approach, that mindset so much. So I know you mentioned you're a voracious reader. Uh, I love reading, obsessed with new books. What are three books? And I'd love to know one, just a, a, a nonfiction book that maybe would be great for a business person, one about the mind decision making, and then maybe for someone who likes Sherlock Holmes. Uh, what's <laughs> um so for are we talking books that just came out new books or just in general nope if you if you got your bookshelf uh and just kind of ones that have stood the test of time for you okay so um what was the first one i got the one about how the mind works in sherlock holmes yeah maybe one for for a business leader or, or something along those lines okay um so for a business leader um i would say one of the many books I have on mindfulness and Buddhism would probably be the thing that I would recommend. Um, 
there is a book by John Kabat-Zinn that I read a long time ago that really forms a lot of how I approach things called Wherever You Go, There You Are. Um, and it's a book about mindfulness, um, about meditation. And I think business leaders really, really need to embrace that and need to calm the fuck down um, and have that be something that they instill in their employees as well. Um, I am so, you know, I really think that it's so crucial to reclaim mind space, to reclaim quiet, to stop asking people to be connected all the time, to stop people ask, to stop having people respond to email right away, to stop the FaceTime culture of the overworking culture. Um, I just think that people are going to be so much more productive, so much more creative, so much better um, if that's not the case. And so, you know, I try to do that myself. Um, I try not to respond to emails right away. I, you know, I will not check my email after a certain point in the day. I step away from the computer on weekends. Um, I'm still working, you know, I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm doing a lot of other things. But I think that it's so important for business leaders to just have that sort of mindset. And I think they'll be really impressed if they read read a book like that. And there are countless books um, as well that I could recommend on the, to- on the topic that would make just the world a much better place um, and a much kinder place. And the business is also more effective. I mean, this is, this is going to be such a long answer because we haven't even gotten to the other two books. But I wrote a piece for The New Yorker a few years ago um, about a four-day work week. And Ford, who was one of the most ruthless business leaders of the 20th century, was the first one to give his workers a weekend because he realized how much more productive they were, because they were happier, because they had a day off, because they didn't have to go to the factories. And all of a sudden, his factories were producing more because the workers were happier and were doing better work because he gave them one day off. And he said, oh, I think I'm going to give them two days off, maybe even three days off, because this is incredible. Look at the gains in productivity. And it's a business decision. People don't realize that more doesn't mean more, that there's actually a lot of quality behind that. So anyway, that's a very long rant, but that's what I would recommend um, for how the mind works um, and kind of decision making. I There are two books um, that I would put in there, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, I think is a classic that most people who are interested in this have probably read already. But um, I would urge you to reread it because there's just so much there. Um, And I would also recommend The Marshmallow Test by Walter Mischel, who was my graduate advisor, who sadly died last year. But um, his book came out at a very inopportune time. It was when there was the Amazon Hachette feud and you couldn't buy the book. Um, And so I think it didn't get nearly as much attention as it should have. And it's just such a fascinating account of a fascinating life and insight into the human mind and human decision making. And then for people who love Sherlock Holmes, I I would say there's just so much fiction out there um, and so much just beautiful poetry out there and so much nonfiction out there for you that I don't even know where to start. Can, can I but narrow it I down would, for you? Uh, so, so I'm obsessed with art heists, uh, spies, and Sherlock Holmes. So that helps you narrow it. I'm obsessive about these things. Um, well, um, I would say if you're obsessed with uh, both Sherlock Holmes and spies, I would, uh, 
I would say go back to the classics. And one of my all-time favorite writers is Raymond Chandler. So read Chandler. Um, read um, the Chandler classics. I think you will find that they will really – they're just such deep books that – I think were I mean Chandler was a Sherlock Holmes fan, but it's it's a really wonderful just way of seeing where so much literature of the 20th century comes from. They're also they're just such beautiful books. Um, I would recommend The Long Goodbye um, as my favorite. Awesome, that was fantastic, and and thank you so much just for for this entire conversation. I could go on for hours with so many <laughs> rabbit holes with you, but the new book which I loved, uh, I became just dove into this the past few days and just loved it. So the biggest bluff, it's out June twenty third. Where else can the listeners stay connected with you? I definitely recommend them picking up your old books as well. All that'll be linked up, but anywhere you want them going. Um, so I'm most active on Twitter um, and on. Instagram and I try to not use Facebook if I can help it. Awesome. Well, thanks. So again. on yes, on Twitter I'm M Konnikova, and on Instagram I'm girl named Maria, but girl doesn't have an I in it, not because I'm illiterate, but because someone else stole girl named Maria with an I. <laughs> well, <laughs> as always, listeners, all of that's linked up in the show notes. Also, a link where you guys can pick up the book, The Biggest Bluff, out June 30, 23rd. But Maria, thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.